0: Welcome to Modern Family Matters, a podcast hosted by Steve Altitian, our Director of Client Partnerships here at Home Family Law. We are devoted to exploring topics within the realm of family law that matter most to you. Our discussions will cover a wide range of both legal and personal issues that encompass family law matters. We strongly believe that life events such as marriages, divorces, remarriages, births, adoptions, children growing up, growing older, illnesses, and deaths do not dissolve a family. Rather, they provide the opportunity to reconfigure and strengthen family dynamics in healthy and positive ways. With expertise from qualified attorneys and professional guests, we hope that our podcast will help provide answers, clarity, and guidance it's a better tomorrow for you and your family. Without further ado, your host, Steve Altitian.
1: Hello everyone. This is Steve Altitian with Lander Home Family Law and I'd like to welcome everyone to our live Facebook event brought to you in conjunction with our recently launched podcast series Modern Family Matters. You can get updates about new podcast episodes on our Facebook page, on Instagram, and at the Apple Store. Today, I'm here with Will Jones. How you doing, Will?
2: Not too bad. Good to be here, Steve.
1: Thank you. Well, Will is a partner here at Lander Home Family Law, and he's our lead litigation attorney. He also specializes in complex and high-conflict divorces, which makes him the perfect choice for our today's topic, how to understand the divorce process and how to make it work to obtain a better and lasting result. But before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the memorial service for George Floyd that is being held today. Watching it before we came on this afternoon, listening to the people speak, I could not help but feel the pain and suffering brought on by the ugly power of systemic and institutional racism. And it has to stop. We have to stop. But there is some hope. There is some light. As many people smarter than I have said, truth brings light. And I'm incredibly proud that we at Lander Home Family Law stand united and are fully committed to listening, learning, advocating, and taking action to search for the truth and to fight for racial inequality and, and injustice. And because it starts with learning, we have to start with sharing, and we'd like to share useful. And some helpful, hopefully, resources and educational tools on our webpage. They're on our Facebook page, they're on our social media pages, they're for every individual who wants to learn about what's going on right now. We're also investing in programs to foster change and to promote greater legal diversity in the legal field. Because we don't have all the answers, we're gonna meet with people, we're gonna brainstorm about more ways to get involved in this fight. And so now, I'd like also to invite listeners to this live broadcast to post any questions you may have, and at the end, we'll try to get them answers as best we can. So the divorce process, well, how do we start? Somehow, I don't think you're going to say
2: at the beginning. No, we unfortunately, we don't. And that's where a ton of confusion comes from, and a ton of people who come in have been through the self-represented packets that are available from the state, and they start at the beginning. Right, petition, jurisdiction, how to file, how to do all those things. Those are great pieces. They are pieces in the process. There's no question about that. But that's not where we're going. It's like if you got in a car and you have no idea where you're going to go. Where do you turn? What do you do? So I always like when I bring clients in to start at the very end. Right, the very end of a divorce case for most people is called a general judgment of dissolution. Right, three ways to get to it. There's no fourth way. There's no magic. There's nothing. You can only do it three ways. Either happens after a trial, it happens by stipulation, which means everybody agrees, or it comes after a default. The default basically means nobody showed up, so the petitioner gets whatever they want. So that end document is the entire goal of this process. What's going to go in it? What's going to be left out? What are the terms going to be? kind of becomes the law of the land between the two divorcing parents and then, of course, parenting time, custody, all that stuff. So that's usually the best place to start, is right at the end. What are we trying to get into this judgment? Now we can build backwards as to how we're going to do that. In what manner are we going to get this judgment done?
1: Sounds like then focusing on the judgment, which is the end product and means everything, obviously means don't screw it up. And I know we had talked a lot. There's a lot of people who are doing DIY divorces, doing yourself divorces, maybe out there listening. there's a lot of those floating around out there that are probably gone to judgment. What are ways, what are things that that aren't included potentially? Because isn't everything pretty much that's enforceable has to be in that judgment?
2: Entirely. If it's not in your judgment, a court can't enforce it, right? So the issue of doing a DIY-style divorce, it may be appropriate for some people, right? There's no question about that. And people have come in and we've sent them back out and said, you don't need it. You just don't. You're... The things you're doing here are so non-complex that, you know, spending money on an attorney's fees doesn't really help you. But for a vast majority of people, that judgment in a DIY process isn't going to fit. Because let's say you're moving a piece of property or say both both parents or both parties are on a home loan. Now, what do you do when you divide the property? Somebody else is keeping it. How do you get the other person's name off? Because that other party can't borrow. They can't get another house. It's going to be a second mortgage for them. There's a lot of little tricks and details in there that can really get lost and really cause problems. And people come to me all the time and say, my judgment that I did myself, I need to be able to buy a car. And I'm getting terrible interest rates because I'm on this home market. And I have to go, well, we need to try to reopen this. We got the last document you had here is incorrect. And I can't enforce it. We have to go back and try to reopen the whole process. Don't always get away with that. So you try, and if you can, yeah, maybe you can get it changed. But property division here in Oregon is non-modifiable. So if your judgment isn't accurate as far as the property, as far as who's going to hold what, as far as transferring title or deeds or retirement or whatever it is, there's a real chance that that's just gone forever.
1: It sounds that (laughs) you're saying is that the judgment has to be built not then just for let's say as soon as the divorce is over. And you know you may clear up, transfer a couple pieces of title. but it's got to be built for twenty five years from now, because it's if it's the deal, and it's the enforceable deal, and it's not easy to change. so it's got to be ready to go when you get it finished.
2: It, it does. And some of the things that people who don't do this kind of work don't necessarily think about all the time is just getting divorced and transferring the property and all that stuff doesn't end everything entirely, right? You may have life insurance, it's going to continue forever for the other party to secure support. One of the I guess more morbid but does happen in this type of work is if one party dies, that judgment is may end up in probate court. So there's all kinds of different ways that this judgment can impact things in the future. And that's really what we look towards here because the divorce process, it's stressful, it's not any fun for anybody. Nobody's ever, you know, kind of smiled their way through a divorce, although you may get a good outcome. But the goal isn't to deal with what's happening today. The goal in this whole process is to deal with the judgment and how that's going to impact everything that moves forward. Because that's where we're going to be in six months, in five years, in 10 years. Are we setting things up appropriately in the judgment to take care of clients 5, 10, 15 years down the road?
1: So the judgment, reaching the judgment, requires obviously something that you have to do before that. and I know the first thing, at least that you would file, may be a petition. So how does the petition sort of fit into this process? This, we've sort of deconstructed it. We went to the end. And so is the petition important? I mean, what does the petition do at this
2: point then? Well, the, the petition, which is the initiating case for a disillusion case, it is important. There's no question about that. But let's look back at where we're going, which is judgment, right? Three ways to get to it. Default stipulation or after a trial. So if we have a stipulation, if everybody agrees to everything, so we put a judgment together, everybody signs it, we're gonna close the entire case, we're gonna file your petition at the same time we file that judgment. And your petition is worthless because your judgment is gonna grab that petition and say that doesn't exist anymore. But we still have to open a case in the courthouse. And the petition is what opens that case. In that event where everybody's already agreed, everybody's already signed a judgment. Your petition is valueless, right? It doesn't do much for you, but you still have to open that case. Where a petition is important is if we don't already have a signed judgment. And that's the huge distinction I want everybody to understand is if you don't have a signed judgment, you don't have a full agreement. You're not done. You haven't settled anything yet. Even though you may have some side agreements, even though you may go, well, we agree that I'm going to keep the house. Those agreements aren't reduced to a judgment. They're not enforceable. There's nothing I can do with those. If you go, well, he agreed to give me the house. And I go, well, he's not agreeing anymore because it's not in a judgment. So if we have a full agreement, file it, done. Petition becomes important if we're not going to find an agreement or if we need to institute a case and start to figure out what's going on and you can't get a default until you file the case. So if we have to go that route, we file a petition and the purpose of the petition is to be vague. We want not be specific uh, as to what people have, but we don't want to put in the petition, I want $300 in spousal support, because the court might award you $500 or 1000 or 10000 I don't know what the number might, depends on the case a lot. But if you only asked for 200 the court's going to go, that's all you asked for. So what we're doing is we're setting goalposts. So if we're just dealing with spousal support, we're going to put something in there like a spousal support in a, an amount the court deems just and equitable. And we're going to leave the court that discretion to decide what's just and equitable. We're not going to tie the court's hands down and say, no, we only want this one little thing. And if we can't have this one little thing, we want nothing. We want broad discretion. So if we do end up in trial because we can't find a stipulation, then we have the ability to argue it should be higher or it should be lower, depending on which client we have. So the petition sets the goalpost.
1: Just like, like I think you said, it's just an ask.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. This, these are the things that I want. And we're not specific. I want some spousals. I want this property to be divided. I want custody of the children and reasonable and seasonable parenting time for the other parent. We're not tying things down to I want every Wednesday only, because now you've limited the ability of the court. So we're just asking, and we're asking for kind of the sun, moon, and stars, but we might get that. If we don't ask for it, there's no way you
1: can have it. So what would you say to someone if they came to you and the other person had filed a petition And they showed it to you and they said, well, I'm not going to do anything because this person is asking for the moon and they just must be unreasonable by asking for
2: this. Most of the time, because this happens a lot, almost any time somebody's been served with divorce paper, they come and see me and they go, they want me to pay their attorney's fees. That's the standard one. Right. Yeah, they do. Why not? But if they didn't ask for it, there's no way they can have it. They need to ask for that me, if I file a petition and don't ask for attorney's fees, I've created a problem and one that I need to fix because those may be awarded. If they don't ask for it, they can't have it. So you got to ask for everything. The classic example I give everybody, I call it the McDonald's problem. You assume McDonald's for $50 and you go through a big long trial and the jury comes back and says, you get 2 million. The judge is going to go, yeah, the jury said that, but you only asked for 50. So here's your 50 bucks. Go have a good time. So a divorce petition shouldn't Upset anyone? Because all they've done is they've set their goalposts. This is as far as the court can go. They can go no further. They can always go less, but they can go no further. The response after somebody's been served with the petition is going to do the exact opposite. Pay my attorney's fees, and here's everything else I want. So now we have big white goalposts to work with. So speaking of the
1: response, what does it do other than turn around and say, "Well, yada yada, I want this," <laughs> you? you don't get it, I get it. Is there a reason that you should file it sooner, file it later? I mean, where, how does it sort of fit into the, to the process of the whole thing?
2: So because we're looking at it from where the judgment is, right? That's where we're trying to get to is the judgment. Yeah. And we're going to assume that we don't have a full agreement, not everybody signed a judgment. That leaves us in a position where a petition is going to be filed, and maybe a response is going to be filed. So the most important thing about filing a response, which is 30 days from the date of service, no later than that, that response avoids that default judgment, right, which is the second or third way to get to a judgment. Somebody files a petition and nobody shows up in a response, nobody appears in that case, then the opposing party who filed the petition can then turn around, no notice to anybody, tell the court, look, they didn't show up, take a default and get everything they asked for in their petition. No more discussion, no more anything, no notifications from the court or the other person. You didn't show up on time, so we're all done. So the first thing a response does is it avoids that default situation, right? Yeah. So And that can be fairly important because the default judgment gets taken. All that stuff's awarded. You come and see me then. Now I have to go and reopen that entire case, maybe, because that is not a certainty. So take a default. I have to come back. I have to reopen it. Now you're spending money in attorney's fees that should have gone into the case initially, could have gone into your response, could have gone into anything. else.
1: If, if I'm thinking to myself, if there are a reason, then it's it seems like what you're saying is you know, as the person filing the petition, you are you are anxious and and eager that that 30 day ends and maybe you can get a fault. But is there a reason that you would advise your client ever? Let's talk to the other attorney. Let's hold off on their holding on their filing response. Is there a reason for not getting it filed right away
2: sometimes? There are some reasons and there's some mechanics that we can put in place to basically buy some more time if we need it. So if you deliver or I deliver to the opposing party a notice in writing, not on the phone, right, a notice in writing that you intend to appear, now they have to give you notice before they take that default. They have to give you 10 days. So that way we can kind of extend our window without worrying about them running to the courthouse and getting everything they want. So in some cases where we're the respondent or going the other way, I get calls from other attorneys that are respondents, they go, hey, we want to hold off on that. And that may be because, hey, this is going to be a really big case. We're going to have all kinds of discovery moving back and forth. We're going to need evaluations of parents and all that stuff, because what your response does at the court level is a clerk looks at it. And I think it's important for people to know a judge doesn't read it when you file it. All that happens is a clerk looks at it and they go, everybody's appeared. Let's book a trial date. So the clerk books the trial date. Now, those pleadings won't get read until you get closer to an appearance by the judge. So they just go book a trial date. Typically, before the pandemic and for all that stuff, four to six months out from when the response was filed was fairly common. Now, I don't know what is common. But if I'm looking at a case and going, this is going to take more than four or six months for the professionals to do their work me to do my work, for us to get into mediation, for us to maybe get into a settlement conference to do all those things, I may want to delay. I may want to go, look, let's hit the brakes on this a little bit, because I know we have a lot of work to do and that's going to take a lot of time. Because you don't want that trial date to come up and not be ready. That is not a good idea at all ever. Uh,
1: so okay, you got your your petition filed, you have your, your response uh, filed or not, depending on what you've agreed to. But you haven't agreed. I mean, everything works great in terms, like you said, if you've agreed. But let's say now you haven't agreed. We've got a trial date coming up. What happens next? What's, what's sort of the in-between part that gets you from here to that judgment that you need to get?
2: And so we've eliminated the default because we filed a response. So that's not an avenue to get to our judgment, right? And we're not agreeing. So stipulation, that's not going to get us where we're going either. So now we're looking at litigation in general. The litigation path is what we call it. So response gets filed. And maybe before that, what we're going to do is discovery, which is a big fancy word to say, we're going to figure out what's going on. Because if you show up in trial, you need to know the value of a home. You need to know what's smart for these kids. You need to know what a retirement account is worth. You need to know what people make. So we're going to ask for things like pay stubs, all that stuff. So we're going to start gathering information. And the nice part about gathering information and bank account statements, is once you have a retirement statement, who can say it's not worth that? There's some taxation issues and things like that, but it's not, I have about 100000 No, you have $102,306. we are yeah. done with that issue. I know what that is. If we do say a custody evaluation, as we gather all this information and the evaluator comes back and says whatever they say, everybody's negotiation position changes. So during that whole process, as we gather things, we start to tighten things down and go, hey, did you look at this? Well, I'd like to make my offer. Well, I need to change my offer because I didn't realize that the house was worth that much. So we're just trying to reach an agreement. If not, we're getting more and more data points. So when we show up at trial, we're ready. We have everything we need. We know what everything in the marriage is worth. We know what the smart ideas for the kids are. We know who's going to come into court and say what. So getting ready for a trial is the same as getting ready for any type of alternative dispute resolution, whether it's a settlement conference, whether it's a reference judge, it's all the same. We need to tie everything down so we can either make smarter offers or say, look, you're just not going to be reasonable. So we can jump the shark and go, this case is going to be tried. We're not going to spend any more time or money trying to mediate this thing because the other party is just being unreasonable. Let's jump to that. We'll wait for your trial date, and we'll try the thing. We don't need to spend any more money trying to just massage something that just isn't going to be massaged. Well, um, I heard
1: a word there. You introduced a new word, mediation. There's a lot of, I think, knowledge and maybe disknowledge as to what mediation is, what arbitration is, you know, and that whole kind of how you make those something that helps you get to that agreement or no, you don't have it and here are your issues
2: it's the public understanding of mediation arbitration settlement conferences it's not always correct right so the problem is is i see a lot of people who come in and they're all fired up and ready to go and they say i want to force this person into mediation mediation isn't going to force anybody to do anything it's the exact opposite People come in and we try to find an agreement. So if you're forcing someone into mediation or you think a mediator is going to go, hey, are we done with this? The mediator is going to go, do you agree with that? Or do you not agree with that? Here's a smarter way to look at it. So people think that mediation is going to force somebody into making an agreement. It can't. That's what trial is for. Trial will get you a result, which is why when we were talking just a minute ago, I said, we're just going to jump the shark. We're going to go to trial and we're going to get a result. Because the only person that can force anything here is the judge. They have all the power entirely. A mediator mm-hmm. will help make smart decisions and help people make smart resolutions. But if people aren't going to be smart, then that's what the courts for.
1: So does there some come some point during this process where you're trying to negotiate, you're trying to come to agreements, you're you're beating your head against the wall at some point, and you just can't come to I mean, agreements. I mean you can't really force someone to be reasonable sometimes. So, you know, what happens, you know, when you, you don't agree
2: on something, you just, and you can't, you realize that. But that's one of the more frustrating parts about being a family law attorney is people will go, why can't you make them be reasonable? Why aren't they taking this offer? This is smart. And I go, yeah, it is smart. I take it. I can't, right? I'm not the other side. And obviously there's a lot of emotions that get wrapped up in this. But I get people who are super, super close to settling cases, and we can't settle them because, well, if I take your offer, you win. Well, if I take your offer, you win. But they're both smart decisions, right? We could wrap this up. We could save a bunch of attorney's fees. It just doesn't always happen that way. I wish it could. But if we can't reach an agreement, that's what the court is for. It's time to go ahead and keep that trial date and end up in court and litigate. And that's fine with me. Sometimes they work out that way. That's what I was trained to do. That's what I do. So.
1: So let's say you, you're, you've you got some temporary order that you've got, or you made some temporary agreements. And obviously, then what people can't say is, oh, we'll just leave it at these and then stop. I mean, you can't, because what you said was obviously that the general judgment is going to end up overruling everything. So I guess that takes you on to just that thing, the general judgment. The, it's yeah. getting to a comprehensive agreement, what kind of things should or maybe should not or be built into that thing?
2: Well, you, you said a couple interesting issues there. So temporary agreement. So I don't think that everybody out there really knows what those are. So a petition was filed. You don't have a general judgment yet. At any point, people can enter into a temporary parenting plan, an agreement, or even after a hearing, who's going to have exclusive use of the home? Who's going to continue to make the car payment, right? Is there going to be some manner of temporary spousal support? So that temporary either agreement or hearing is meant to last the life of the case. So people are having difficulty with pairing time. You can ask for a short hearing in court if you can't find an agreement for a pairing plan that will last just until we get to a general judgment. And it doesn't affect anything in the general judgment. General judgment could be entirely opposite. But that temporary order is enforceable for the life of the case. So if you go, well, we have these temporary agreements and we'll just leave it at that, what's gonna happen at some point is the court's gonna go, there's been no activity on this case for so long, dismiss it. Now your general judgment, instead of awarding anything, it's a general judgment of dismissal. So your case is now gone. Because the case is gone, your temporary order is gone and no longer enforceable. It's just out of the way.
1: So you could get someone coming in at you three late three years after divorce that they never resolve, drop a temporary parenting plan on your desk or a mediation agreement on your desk and say, here, enforce it. Sounds like that ain't going to happen that way.
2: Not at all. I have uh, some people that I'm working with right now, they have a lovely mediated parenting plan, right? They did it six, eight months ago. It's well put together. It's well drafted. It's well written. It's signed by both of the parties. It's great. About 3 weekish ago, opposing party says you're not getting any parenting time. Come to me with this lovely mediated agreement and say, I'm not getting my parenting time. What do I do? Well, your mediated agreement, it's a nice piece of evidence for what you guys thought, but it's not enforceable because it's not a court order and it's not a judgment. I can't help you with that. Now, I can't take that and go, hey, you guys thought this was a smart idea, but until it's in an order and then eventually a judgment, it's a contract. And you can't contract for parenting time in Oregon, by the way, but Say you guys agreed to the house and all this other stuff that's a civil contract that's all that's all you have you don't have a judgment so I can't go and foreclose on that house I can go and sue under the contract maybe if I get a judgment out of that now maybe I can start talking about foreclosing on the house but it's not in a judgment and that it's one of the larger myths that exist is we've worked out something you don't have a judgment you don't have an order so you have it because the one of the more common ones, He's going to keep the house. Okay, that's fine. Your name's on it. He needs to refinance. Well, he can't refinance Now, where are we? Because they agreed that he was going to keep it, but he has to refinance. and he can't do it. So you don't have an agreement on that. That house is probably needs to be sold at that point. So people haven't thought about that yet, but they agreed and they think they're done with that. piece. And you're not. Not until it's in a legally binding enforceable document, which is generally a judgment. So it ain't overtaken. Yeah. And there's, I'm sure every family law attorney will give you stories about how we've worked out 99 and a half percent of these cases and they're ready to go. All we, somebody's just got to make a decision here. And the argument is over. Well, will the Wednesday visit be overnight or just for dinner with the kid? Right. And it's like, oh, somebody give because, you know, we got a $10 million case and we've agreed to everything and nobody will give. And then one attorney has to call the other one and go, see in trial tomorrow. I guess we're doing the whole wow. thing because we can't figure it out because it's not in a judgment yet. It's not there. Now, people are free to settle pre-trial any issue they want. They can settle the house. They can do all that and just tell the court when they show up at trial, we've agreed to these certain things and we have disputes about these other things. Still, not in a judgment, not enforceable. But a judge, if you guys have agreements or stipulations, will usually go, one last thing I have to hear today, very clear.
1: Well, Will, thank you. I think we've run out of time. We could probably talk about this for another hour and a half, and it's fascinating stuff. And it gets, you know, it's important because, like you said, you got to get the judgment right. I mean, that—that's the end of the story. So, but we are—we are out of time, and so thank you so much, man. And again, everybody, I'm Steve at Home Family Law. We're bringing you this Facebook live in conjunction with Modern Family Matters. And hey, if you have any family-related topics that you would like us to address, legal or otherwise, or are interested in even being a guest on a podcast, please feel free to call me or contact me personally at steve at landerhomelaw.com. And Land Home Law is one word, and Steve is one word. So it's steve at law.com. And other than that, I just want to say, you know, These are sad but hopeful times, and we're going to get through them all together, and everyone stay safe, and we'll see you later.
0: You're listening to Modern Family Matters, a legal podcast focusing on providing real answers and direction for individuals and families as they navigate the growths, changes, and challenges of creating their new family dynamic. Modern Family Matters is sponsored by Landerholm Family Law, serving Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, and devoted to providing clients with compassionate and fierce legal advocacy, with a firm belief in the importance of upholding the family unit amidst complex transitions. If you are in need of legal counsel or have additional questions about a family law matter important to you, you can visit our Landerholm Family Law website at www. Landerhomelaw.com or call us at 503-227-0200 to schedule a case evaluation with one of our seasoned attorneys. Modern Family Matters, advocating for your better tomorrow and offering solutions on legal matters important to the modern family.